everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Today's episode has been dedicated by Jordana and Common Shore in honor of the marriage of Talia, Agus, and Gavi Weiss, wishing the couple a beautiful life together as they build a home of Torah and joy and good health. Mazal Tov as well to their dear parents, Esti and Elitzur, and Sasha and Yoni. Mazal Tov. Welcome back to Matan's one-on-one podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. I want to update you regarding several exciting events at Matan before moving to the Parsha. Matan will be marking 35 years of women's Torah learning with a Yishai Rebo concert at the Jerusalem Theater on October 8th or the 13th of Tishrei, right before Sukkot. If you will be here in Israel, we would love to see you there. Registration for the coming academic year is well underway. Please check out the Matan website for all relevant information. Matan will be running its annual Elul program from September 11th through the 22nd, or the 15th to the 26th of Elul. The Elul program is a great opportunity to get a taste of Matan and recharge for the coming year. There are parallel Hebrew and English programs. Check out our website and all social media platforms for more information. Lastly, if you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Shoftim is comprised of mitzvot and warnings. The Parsha opens with a commandment to set up a legal system in Israel to ensure that justice is meted out and also outlines the roles of judges, priests, and Levites. It then moves to the laws limiting the Israelite king, a section we will be mentioning in our discussion today. And this closes the first section of the Parsha, which thematically focuses on leadership. After this, the collection of laws is more eclectic. Among them, the nature of Israelite prophecy versus the magicians of the Gentiles, the commandment to set up cities of refuge, laws of witnesses, and then a section of war-related laws regarding how the Israelites should treat their enemies in wartime and the land on which they wage war. The Parsha ends with the ritual of the Egla Rufa, the heifer whose neck is broken in a ritual response to unsolved murder. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Simi Peters, who has been teaching in Matan's Belos Eshkelot Educators Institute for Tanakh and Jewish Studies for the past three years, and is a senior faculty member at Nishmat. She is the author of Learning to Read Midrash, and its translation into Hebrew is forthcoming. Simi, it's great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be back. Since we last spoke about your experience writing about Midrash and, and writing in general and how it fit into your life story, Today we're here to speak about Parshat Shoftim and the figure of the Nitziv. So take us into that world, whoever, whoever feels right. The Nitziv is a very, very important acharon for a person whose interest is in interpretation and in Parshanut HaMikra, biblical commentary. The Nitziv is, um, to my mind, too little known. Many people do learn Nitziv. Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who wrote which translated literally means look deeply into the thing and the accompanying an expansion on that commentary on the Torah. He wrote them at the same time, do you know? I don't know. I don't know. I suspect not. Yeah. I suspect if it if he had, they would have it would have all been in there. The Nitziv the Nitziv is hard to learn. The Nitziv is hard to learn for a number of reasons. One of which is, and I always promise myself I'm gonna do this and I rarely do. You start reading the Nitziv, he quotes Chazal extensively, halachic sources extensively. And if you really want to do a good job on his Perush La Torah, you should probably have your students look at all of the sources. And usually I pick out one or two that I think are, 
are critical. But the Nitziv is profound. He's deep. He's amazing. I have learned so much from the Nitziv. And the more I learn of the Nitziv, the more I see that his unified worldview is, is extremely coherent and profound and um, connects different parts of Torah in a way that other people don't think of connecting parts of the Torah. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, his whole concept of chidush, or innovative readings, and, and how that uh, comes into things. But I, I, there's a famous story about the Nitziv as a child, which is sort of a cautionary tale for parents and teachers. And it's a story I heard many times. It goes around yeshivish circles, and Different people come to different conclusions about the story. But the story, you know, we have the luxury of living in a time when Jewish education is readily available, not always of the highest quality. But any Jew who wants to learn Torah has access to a lot of Torah. Even in the Lithuanian world, certainly in Europe, in all parts of Europe, it was very, very difficult to afford to send a child to yeshiva to really learn at a high level. And uh, the Nitziv's parents had concluded that he wasn't cut out for yeshiva. And they were talking about apprenticing him to a shoemaker. And uh, he overheard them uh, talking about this. He was a young boy. And he burst into the room weeping, crying, begging, saying, please, please send me to yeshiva. So if a child expresses that kind of interest, they actually sent him to yeshiva. But nobody thought about him as the sharpest knife in the drawer. He was not considered a genius. He was also from a very sharp family, meaning yes. he was from an illustrious rabbinic family. Yes, and that he came from an illustrious rabbinic family. The bar was very, very high. Yeah. But he went to yeshiva, he learned, and um, he actually uh, married the Rosh Yeshiva's daughter, right? And um, uh, still nobody had realized what a genius he was. One day, his father-in-law walked past his shtender, his, you know, uh, stall, you know, the place where he was keeping his books, walked past, knocked his notebook off the shtender by accident, picked it up, it was open, and he glanced at it, and then he glanced at it again, and he said, whoa, I paraphrase. He said, wow, and that's how people found out what, the, uh, what a genius the Nitziv was. And, and some, uh, some people, you know, tell this story and say, well, you know, this just teaches the power of hatmada, of the willingness to, to work hard and learn Torah and really put your heart into it and to sit and to break your head, and you can become a genius no matter what your abilities. But I have a slightly different take on it. I think that in Lita and Lithuania of the Nitziv's time and before, um, what was very much appreciated was harifut, you know, sort of a sharp, uh, the quickness, the sharpness, the ability to like answer right away and to, to see the whole, you know, just that kind of thinking. The kind of kid, if you will, who raises his hand first in the classroom, always, always has an answer. And I think that Etsiv was slow. I don't, and deep. I don't mean slow in the sense of that his intellectual processes were slow, but I think he was thoughtful and deep, and that wasn't recognized right away, because that's a harder thing to recognize. For me, that's the cautionary tale. Obviously, the value of hard work, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, if you don't work hard, you're not going to get anywhere in Talmud Torah. But for for me, the, the um, as a teacher, as a parent, the question is, 
do you recognize your child's capacity for depth and what the implications of that could be for educating him or her? And um, so I've always I've always found the Nitziv a very that story very very moving those stories very very moving. The more Nitziv you learn, the more you see that he has a completely unique way of looking at many many things, and it is utterly steeped in Chazal. I, I should mention here for historical context and and for his biography, obviously, that's why we have Reb Google or Doctor Google, depending who you prefer. But um, like many other 19th century um, achronim, like the Malbim, like Rav Hirsch, uh, who were battling the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, a central preoccupation of these people was to show the unity between Torah Shebichtav and Torah Shebalpeh, the written Torah and the oral Torah. That was a very, very important um, preoccupation of theirs. I think there's another layer when it comes to the Nitziv. I think the Nitziv has a particularly interesting view of Jewish history, which informs his reading of many, many things. So with that, I think, you know, we can go now to the Mitzvah Tamelech, which is the mitzvah to appoint a king. So say one thing before you move on to that, which is that for me, what's the one of the most interesting things about reading Achronim, or again, the, I would say post, you could say 16th century and onward, it could be defined differently, is that we know the world in some way better than we know in earlier commentators, and they're also less concerned about letting that world inform my sense, that they're less concerned about letting that world inform their commentaries. So you'll have a comment, again, that's... If, if you ever learn anything that Steve it's often brought up is comment on the story of the Tower of Bavel and he speaks about basically totalitarian regimes or dictatorships mm-hmm. uh, and what's for me always fun uh, or or delightful I would say in, in learning sort of commentaries of later commentators is being able to bring in the world of history and that they they're also open about the fact that they're bringing in uh, in earlier commentaries, we tend to read it into what they say, as opposed to them saying it outright. But in later commentaries, they'll say it in programmatic statements. They'll make it very clear. We know that they're battling the Haskalah in the example you just gave right now. So for somebody who is sort of delighted by the interplay between our text and Torah development and history, I always find that that's like another really moving piece of learning Achronim specifically. Yeah, I think also with the Rishonim, it, the um, separation from the world was not really theirs so much as imposed from the outside. So in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. We're, we're talking about the Rishon. We're talking about a very long period. But I think that's true. I think that also there is a need to justify. In other words, the Nitziv, the Malbim, Rav Hirsch, in a very different milieu, have a need to justify the authenticity yeah. and the authority of Torah. And that's, that's a very big preoccupation. So yes, they do address those kinds of questions. I think that's true. I think that's important. Okay, so let's go to the Parsha, and I'm going to read a couple of psukim here and talk a little bit about the dispute that the machloket that appears in connection with this mitzvah. We're in Parsha Shoftim, Perak Yudzayin, chapter 17, verse 14. Ki tavo el ha'aretz asher Hashem elokecha noten lach when you come into the land that Hashem, your Lord, is giving to you, 
and you inherit it and you dwell in it, and you will say, I will place upon myself a king like all of the nations that are around me. You shall surely place upon yourselves a king whom Hashem your Lord will choose from amongst your brothers you will place upon yourselves a king you will not be able to place upon yourselves or you may not place upon yourselves a foreign man who is not your brother. Okay, now what's interesting about this mitzvah is that there is a machloket going back to Chazal and to the late Achronim about whether this mitzvah is reshut or chovah, whether it is optional, know or obligatory okay if you think about all of the mitzvot in the Torah one would expect that there not be a machloket about this we're talking about a national mitzvah with profound ramifications for Jewish history right and the last thing you would expect would be that there is a dispute about something so fundamental. I'd also say that the categorically it's unusual because when we talk about mitzvot, we might say it's circumstantial. If you wear a four-cornered garment, you need to put on tzitzit. But right. we don't usually talk about things being optional. They could be circumstantial, and then in many times you won't fulfill that mitzvah. That's right. Okay, so that's so. For example, if you want to divorce your wife, this is the way you exactly. Have to do it. You but you certainly eat, aren't commanded right. to divorce. That's exactly. right. Okay, um, but certainly this is a strange, a sort of a strange situation. And the question is, why does this question arise? And I'll just, I'll just say very briefly, um, and, and be patient with me. It boils down to the grammar. Yeah. It boils down to the grammar and a sort of difficulty in the grammar of the uh, mitzvah. There are two ways to express a commandment in Biblical Hebrew. One is to use the imperative form, like som tasim, which, by the way, is not just a plain imperative. Som would be place, you know, place a king upon yourselves. Som tasim is emphatic, you shall surely place upon yourselves. That's one way to express a commandment. Another way to express a commandment is to use the future form. Okay, you shall make, you will make, which means thou shalt make, a fence around your roof. Okay, and there are, there are many examples of both the imperative form or the future form used as commandments. Okay, now if we take a look at this mitzvah, we have, as you pointed out, Yosefa, a conditional a conditional statement, Ki when you come into the land, you inherit it and you dwell in it, meaning you have conquered the land, you've settled the land, and you will say. Now, is that a commandment? Thou shalt say. Is that if you say? Or is that if you will say, right? It, any, any, that can be read in any one of three ways. And in fact, the Ramban reads it as va'amalta means thou shalt say. You have an obligation to request a king. And um, the, there are other commentators who say if you ask for a king, then you place a king upon yourselves. Okay? Now, 
What's interesting about this, this tension that is in the text is that it also relies on a discussion later in Sefer Shmuel, in the book of Samuel. And many of the commentators who say, or in Chazal, when they say it's reshut, that is to say it's an optional mitzvah, it's not chova, it's not obligatory, it's not uh, something you're compelled to do, it has to do with the fact that later in the book of Samuel, when the people ask for a king, Samuel is, Shmuel is very, very upset, and Hashem likens it, Hashem himself likens it to Avodah to the worship of idols. So how can it be obligatory? It's a con- is it a concession? You want a king? Okay, I'll give you a king. The, the text in Shmuel would seem to indicate it's a concession. Or is it an obligation? Right? That's basically, I think, the question. So the Nitziv actually has a very, very interesting approach to this. He says, look, clearly you cannot make the mitzvah of a king be obligatory. You can't say that the mitzvah of a king is obligatory. And his reason for this is extremely interesting. He says that's because in matters of sovereignty, the way in which a nation will be governed those matters touch upon things that relate to pikuach nefesh, that relate to danger to life and limb. So, for example, I mean, he doesn't give this example, but kings make wars. Kings set policy about water, arable land. I mean, if you think about a modern government, we just had this with corona, a modern government could make a decision that might mean millions of people die or they have saved millions of people. So when you're talking about pikuach nefesh, which is the obligation to save life, which is the primary overarching principle in halacha, which can certainly cancel, uh, for example, Shabbat, positive commandments. So when you're talking about pikuach nefesh, which is what the form of government is going to involve, you cannot say that you have to have a king. But he says, and he, he actually creates a new category here in a way that nobody else talks about this. He says, Marta, and you will say, doesn't mean you will say, or as the Ramban says, you are obligated to request a king. It means Marta in the sense of, and you want. Okay, and the example that he gives is Basar Ta'ava, the permission to eat meat outside the confines of korbanot, outside the confines of sacrificial offerings. The amarta means, if you want to eat meat, this is how you do it. The amarta, if you, the Jewish people, want a king, som tasim alecha melech. I strongly suggest that if that you all um, learn through this piece, it's fascinating. But what he's saying is, it's almost like saying, if you want a king, you have to have a king. And it's dependent upon the will of the Jewish people. The Nitziv, by the way, takes a hard line that you want the mitzvah of king to be obligatory. That's what you want. So if I can summarize it in a sentence, what he's saying is that it will become obligatory if the people want it. That's right. Okay. Exactly that. That is an extremely strange statement to make. I cannot conceive of a Rishon saying something like that. The Nitziv says it. And one of the nice things when you learn the Nitziv is the extent to which the Nitziv says things like this, radical, totally out-of-the-box ways of thinking about all sorts of topics, because for the Nitziv, and this is why I love the Nitziv so much, a fundamental principle 
is that the Torah is here for us to do chidush, for us to propose innovative readings. And that's amazing. He's saying the purpose of Talmud Torah is to create innovative readings. And he links that to history, which I also find very interesting. By the way, one of the nice things about the chidushim of the Nitziv, of the, of the innovations of the Nitziv, is that they're not simply his original ideas. He's always basing himself in prior sources, but reading them in ways that are, that are new. Grounded, but extremely new, mm-hmm. right? It's not an idea that's coming from the outside with no connection organically to what came before. That's part of what makes the Nitziv so unique. So we've mentioned now briefly this idea of chidush. So, but there we have other sources that we're going to look at to understand how this impacts how he looks at Talmud Torah. Okay. So one of the things that's interesting about the Nitziv, if you look at his um, Haktamala Torah, which again I strongly suggest you do if you can. It's beautiful. In general, a great chavrut to have is to do Haktamot. Yeah, it's a great look at introductions. He his his sort of um, entry into Sefer Dvarim, where he talks about Sefer Dvarim, he raises a very radical idea, and it, I don't know, blew my mind up. I mean, it just totally blew me away. His idea is based on a Gemara Nedarim, which, in which there's an opinion that says that the Torah was given to be Moshe's and his children's. In other words, you would have had something like the priesthood of the Catholic Church, where what you essentially have is you have a cadre of highly educated people who know how to read scripture and or church law or whatever, you know, and everybody else goes to them for, uh, for enlightenment. To- Moshe teaches the Torah to B'nai Yisrael, and again, I'm summarizing very briefly uh, something that he talks about at length, but everybody, as long as B'nai Yisrael are in the desert, they don't need the tools of Talmud Torah because if you have a question, you go to Moshe, right? You're sort of like in the Beit Midrash. You got a problem, go ask your Rebbe, mm-hmm. right? And you have the Navi, you have a direct pipeline to God, and you don't need Talmud Torah in the sense in which we engage in it today. He says that changes um, when the Jewish people go into the land of Israel, and that's when Moshe starts to teach the Jewish people not simply the content of the mitzvot and the details of the mitzvot, but the principles of biblical exegesis or halachic exegesis. And that is a profound change. Moshe starts doing that in Arvot Moab. Before his death, he gives the people the keys to the kingdom, right? He also says that hukim and mishpatim, if I remember correctly, is a keyword to describe the 13 attributes of derivation. That's right. That's right. So he says that he brings a number of examples where he says, they, it just could have said, Vayitzav Moshe, but then it says, Chukim HaMishpatim. And that's because that's where Moshe was basically filling them in on the methodology. On the methodology. Methodology, right? 
of how to how to actually derive this when you won't have that main source. Yeah, I think that I think if you think about it, the reason we generally think of chukim. This is not the nitziv. This is just something that occurred to me when I was learning the nitziv. Chukim we generally think of as decrees, mitzvot that we don't understand. I would call them the axioms of geometry, so to speak. Right? We don't know why we have these 13 principles or these 32 or these seven principles that different people have put together about how to learn through and derive new halachot, right? We don't know them. We don't know why those are the principles. They're sort of like axioms that we employ in, in uh, exploring the text. Okay. So he talks about this and he says, and of course this was necessitated by the fact that Moshe wasn't going to go into the land with them. Right? Moshe is not going to go into Eretz Yisrael. They have to have the independent skills or tools. Now, what would have happened had Moshe gone in with them? Well, they wouldn't have needed those independent uh, skills or tools. And the Nitziv says, and then these principles of Talmud Torah would have been given to Ezra HaSofer. Or another way to put this, and this is again a mind-blowing idea, the necessity for the democratization or the empowerment of the Jewish people, that everybody be able to learn Torah independently, of course, after study and knowledge and, and receiving the keys, so to speak. The principle is dictated by Jewish history. Galut, exile, makes Talmud Torah necessary. Talmud Torah and the style in which we engage in it, necessary. Or as Chazal say, he doesn't say it here, but I was a little surprised he didn't say this, Chacham Adif Minavi. A person who is wise and knows how to learn things is preferred traditionally to the prophet. Because a prophet is the direct pipeline. But when prophecy is gone and prophecy stops happening when the Jewish people go into exile or disperse, they're not in the Beit Midrash anymore, they don't have that direct pipeline, then you need the principles of Talmud Torah. So tell me if you agree with this reading of this source. He, he seems to suggest that there is a core truth, meaning if you just open up a page of Gemara, you see many different opinions. That's and we right. choose to go with an opinion in different places, mm-hmm. and, and then it develops into Halakha. But the way he describes it is that he says that when you go into the land of Israel and then our lives will continue, you needed these rules of pilpul, of these sort of derivation rules, um, not mitzad svera, not so that we can sort of think of different hypotheses, but in order to get to omeka chakira bekoach meaning we had to, we were forced to have to go deep into these ideas in order to get to the the Talmud, in order to actually get to the the truth of what the Torah should be, or the halacha in that case. Mm-hmm. He seems to suggest there's something slightly more Objective. It's not just different oh, opinions. Sure. We choose something, but that we have to use these skills in order to get to what is the core truth of what's supposed to be. Oh, absolutely. I think the, the assumption is this. I mean, I, I remember a non-Jewish person once asked me this. He observed a, a Torah class I was giving uh, for complicated reasons. But anyway, he said, <laughs> he said, look, I've been watching what you've been doing for the past 45 minutes. And I, I said in a Southern accent, he was an interesting man. He said, and... Uh, and I'm wondering, right? And I'm wondering, it looks like the Socratic method, but it doesn't feel like the Socratic method. Yeah. What are you, well, like, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. 
It was the best question anybody ever asked me. Because you're getting to something specific, meaning it's not actually fully open? Well, or let's put it this way. The Socratic method assumes that, and this is the difference between the Greeks and the Jews, the Socratic method assumes that the truth is in me, and the good teacher's guide slash philosopher teaches me to get in touch with what's the truth in me. Jews don't believe that. We believe the truth is revealed by God, and it's our job to figure out what it is. And both student and teacher ask questions. It's not just the guide, teacher, philosopher who asks the questions. And we're all trying to get at what God wants. And I think that's true. I think the Nitzvah isn't saying this is an intellectual game. Let's play the intellectual game. Let's come up with creative ways. Right, not at all talking no. about it. It's talking about this is God's truth. This is the word of God. Word of God. We want to know what God wants us to do, to think, to be, to grow into. And absolutely, absolutely. I don't think that it's even saying it's it's an intellectual game at all. No. We're coming to a close now. It's beautiful. Everyone, they know already that I, I love images. I mm-hmm. was, this was in my preparation, this is what was most highlighted. But he speaks about Torah in the image of a tree because of the Pasuk of Etz Chaimhi Lemachazikim Ba. And he says that the tree is, of course, rooted in the land. Its growth depends its on. Its growth depends on those roots. Mm-hmm. And he said, you can't see them. They're mm-hmm. not something you could see. But if they're not strong and healthy, then the tree will not be able to thrive. And from these strong roots, then you have the trunk, which is its next level. And then from there, then he says it gets thin. Then you have the thin branches and you have the fruits that, that, that grow in it. But he basically is saying that the roots is HaKadosh Baruch Hu, if I understood the metaphor correctly. Mm-hmm. The roots are HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The trunk are the earliest traditions of, of Masorah, of, of these traditions that are passed on, I would say, like Moshe. And then you have the students that come later, and then you have even much later the pilpul, and as you said, the chidushim that will come. These those are going to be the endless small branches that grow off of the main ones, mm-hmm. and really just taking that idea of the tree and and breaking that metaphor down in a way that I think is is utterly moving. But thinking of God as as roots, and the Torah of God, the Torah of God. Yeah, there, it's yeah. not a theological treatise. Thinking about the Torah of God. As, as the roots that keep everything strong. And there's endless growth in the tree, mm-hmm. in its branches, in its fruits, that it can, it can bring forth anew each year. But if those roots are not firmly planted on the ground, none of those chidushim, if we'll switch back and forth between the metaphor and its, and its interpretation, none of them will actually be, they won't be tasty, they won't be accurate, and they, they won't, won't be connected. Be, they won't be grounded. They won't be grounded in anything. Yeah, no, I, and by the way, this is all based on Midrashim, Gemaras, yeah. sources, that uh, Psukim elsewhere. He's, he's just, you know, he grounds himself very, very well in the sources. And I just want to point out one other thing that is very, very important. He says that this pilpul of Torah, this um, engagement in Torah, the, if you will, empowerment of the Jewish people to learn Torah independently, that is what preserved the Jewish people throughout Galut. And Archeb Davari talks about the fact that Ezra makes all sorts of changes because Bayi is the preparation for the long Galut that we are still in, right? Um, but what he says is uh, the Jewish people would not have survived and the Jewish people would not have been the Jewish people. And I think that's true. I think that when the Jewish people are cut off from Torah 
And the connection could be tenuous, but as long as they have that connection, we're still here. And the minute we cut ourselves off, the children may be still Jewish, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren already aren't. Um, so the Nitziv is inspirational, but it's always uh, highly, highly textual, and that's very, very powerful. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.